All right, if you are remaining here with us, I'd invite you to take uh, your Bible out this morning to the book of Ruth. And as I mentioned earlier, that song was one of those songs that uh, we don't sing very often. Uh, It was, you know, I get the advantage point to look out, and it was interesting to watch those who clearly had memories of singing that song. Uh, It kind of started ticking. For me, I grew up in a Baptist church in southern Maine, and so that song kind of brought back some memories for me too, but really the words, right, my chains fell off and now I'm free, all right, and just that amazing kind of mental picture, and uh, we may not talk like that much anymore, but there's some good, uh, I think, imagery that came with that song. Well, today we're going to finish our study through the book of Ruth, and uh, we've been not too long in it, comparatively speaking, to other series that we've done, but really what has taken place is nothing short of of just God's providential hand at work, kind of just big picture things that went on and took place. Let me just remind you of them, right? Naomi, her family goes to Moab, while in Moab, uh, a couple of her sons get married. Then Naomi finds herself husbandless, sonless, with two daughter-in-laws left, For Ruth, she finds herself clinging to Naomi as Naomi then returns back to Bethlehem, where she's originally from. There's certainly the process of mourning as they live out life and try to figure it out, Ruth and Naomi together. But Ruth realizes that Naomi, certainly just getting older in life, is not going to provide, but she takes upon herself to go out, to look for food, to glean after people who are walking through, to provide for herself and for Naomi. Uh, she goes and she studies and kind of looks around. She comes across a field and, and runs into a gentleman named Boaz and ends up gleaning in that field. And, and Boaz says, look, stay here, glean here. Tells the workers, make sure that no harm comes to her. Even says, look, as you're going, just kind of pull out some of your crop and just leave it on the ground so that Ruth would come and pick it up. Because he seems that, that Boaz and Ruth have just um, have a unique relationship already beginning and working this process out with Naomi and her discussion, um, Naomi comes up with a plan. And really, chapter 3, we looked at last week, says, look, why don't you just go? Go to Boaz at night, uncover his feet, make him cold, wake him up. When uh, he wakes up, just kind of follow what he says. And, and kind of working this whole process out, really what happens is Naomi ends up, or Ruth ends up kind of asking Boaz uh, to, to marry her, to provide in that way. And Boaz says, look, here, I would love to. It's just the impression we get. Uh, but the reality is there's, there's one more other, other person, there's one more person in front of him in line to redeem this whole situation. Uh, you know, it was, it was just current uh, cultural context here that uh, if there was a widow that had no children, the next family member would actually try to if, uh, you know, would marry that widow that there would be children, that the family line would continue on both in name and land and, and produce. And so Boaz says, I'm actually not first. There's one other that comes before me. And in Ruth's account of telling the story, that interaction with, with Boaz to Naomi, Naomi says, look, I'm sure he'll take care of this tomorrow, that he'll be diligent. Boaz will find an answer. And we talked so far, just about God's providential hand kind of working through this. Um, and even in our own lives, that still exists. That, that when life is going on and things happen that we don't understand, God's providential hand, meaning what he 
ultimately chooses is taking place, and yet we saw God's hand of grace in this story. We saw last week the response of Boaz and really just kind of zoned in, highlighted, look, that our character, if we're calling ourselves Christians, it matters. How we conduct ourselves, our integrity, right? Even asking our boys at lunch that day, man, what is character? What is integrity? Right? And just even a simple definition I offered to you really was, like, it's who you are when no one's, no one's watching you. But that's your character. That, that's, that's your integrity. Choosing to do the right thing, even though you know that nobody else may ever know of the decision that you made. And, and it ranges everything from kind of big picture things to um, choosing in your job to do the right thing. You know, your boss is never going to check back up on you to keep your marriage kind of in good standing, being faithful to your spouse. Um, those are big picture things to just even small things, right? I mean, we obey laws, even if we don't think they're the greatest laws, right? That's actually, that's a character issue, right? God says, submit yourself to the authorities. And so what do we do with that? Um, our character matters because your character is stirred out of who you are at your deepest part, I believe. The decisions that I make, small and large, are actually guided by what's going on deep within me. What's stirring? And we, we say it to our kids, right? Um, you know, kind of what you listen to, will eventually affect your heart and mind. So when they gripe, they complain, why can't I play that song on Alexa? Because it's not wise. And so we're, we're, our job as parents is to guide that process because we believe their character matters. Like we're raising young men in my house, not boys, right? That eventually we'll, we'll go <laughs> and be young men somewhere else, right? But that's, that's the hope. And we are deeply convicted that that character will drive them and we want that to be a godly character. That brings us to Ruth chapter 4. So if you have a Bible with you, you're going to read the whole thing this morning, the end of the story of Ruth here, chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. This is God's word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field... From the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he withdrew, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead 
in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who, gather, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in, in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord. Sorry, then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amadab, Amadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Lord, just thank you um, for this simple story. Again, one of, of probably many on even planet Earth at that time in which you were working, but you've given us it in your word to look at. And so now as we study a little bit deeper, would you just give us wisdom in your name? Amen. What we see going on here really is Boaz opening up in this section, chapter 4, keeping his word. Right? Boaz said he would seek it out, he'd work on it, and if we get uh, no indication that he's wasted any time, it seems like the very next day, like he said he would, he goes to the gate. The gate, historically speaking, was a town hall Right? This was the courthouse of the towns and villages. Um, many Roman cities that we uh, know of nowadays have kind of that central place of meeting, but a lot of just towns and villages didn't have that. The gate was a place where most official business was done, so it made sense for uh, Boaz to go there. We're told elders in town, of the towns and villages, they, they came. Well, that's because they're there to witness this transaction. Right? Don't forget, historically speaking, throughout most of modern history, and even ancient history, right, the age or more vintage in life have been held with esteem, right? There's wisdom there. And so the elders probably are those a little bit more experienced in life. They bring wisdom. So they're able to sit and to listen, to hear these things and process, hopefully objectively. At times, they even would decide cases for people. And so Boaz appears to come to this place because he thinks the Redeemer, the one who is before him, will come through the gate. And apparently he was correct. Right upon the passing, Boaz says, look, come, just come, sit down. And it's likely they knew each other. We don't get the indication they don't, right? And why do we think that? Because Boaz knew that this guy was before him in the line of redemption. And now we begin kind of, I think, this interesting interaction that takes place, right? Some would maybe get the sense, because you know the whole story, because we read it together just now, but it's almost like that phone call, that, that salesperson, that, that politician that comes and knocks at your door, Right? And you, you know that there's an agenda, that it's going somewhere, but we're not quite sure where it's going to go. This is kind of my mental picture I have anyway. You know, Boaz saying, hey, just, just come see here. I've got a quick question for you. Go, okay. 
And so he sits down, right, he begins to talk, and, and probably like, you know, some unsuspecting victim, he's just waiting for the conversation to kind of get to this punchline here. Like, what, what's the catch? What is Boaz really up to? Because it wouldn't be normal for Boaz to sit there and wait for this guy at the gate. So this scene now leads this interaction of Boaz and his first redeemer, and Boaz kind of begins a sales pitch. Ruth, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4, says this, Then he said to the Redeemer, being Boaz, said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it. Buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after, after I come, I come after you, he said. And then he said, I will redeem it. This is interesting, isn't it? I mean, Boaz is, is pitching part of the story. And I do this to Kim all the time. Like, I'll tell her kind of partial things just to get a reaction out of it, to see what she would do. And then I kind of hope to conclude it in a more pleasant way. But Boaz begins with this interaction, really just to present this opportunity for, to this gentleman to redeem land. Say, look, look, there's land here. Do you want it? Now, land is valuable, yes. Land is an indication of one's uh, kind of wealth and what they've accumulated, but also their future heritage, right? These are things that can be passed on. And so if we have land, great, right? If I have more land, well, that means that, listen, in my situation, if I've got one acre, we're going to divide it by four, and my four boys will get you know, a quarter of an acre one day. But if I have four acres, now they all get an acre, right? It's more for them moving forward. And so that's probably what this Redeemer is thinking here. Look, do you want some land? Great, take it. Um, it'll help you out. It's also going to keep the land in the family line of Elimelech. And the response, the Redeemer makes perfect sense. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'll take it. So if we stopped here, right, just put a, put a period, close your Bible up, the story's over, right? That's where the story would end. The land would go to this redeemer. It's likely that the whole relationship between Ruth and Boaz would just fizzle out. But interestingly enough, for whatever reason, Boaz continues talking. And he adds really the remainder of the details to what the land acquisition would include. Verses 5 and 6, it says, Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Says, oh yeah, <laughs> one more thing. The land's great, it's choice actually. Farming, fantastic. You're going to get another wife. Before you become oversensitive and critical, okay, um, apparently just kind of devotion to one wife was not culturally normal, right? So having more than one wife was more culturally normal. Um, what we see walking out in the New Testament is more of a faithful relationship, one husband and one wife, but this was just cultural. And so that would have come as normal. This wasn't shocking to the Redeemer to hear, but his concern actually seems to be that if I acquire Ruth, now it's possible that we could have children. And not only will my inheritance that I have for my kids be sliced up if I have more kids. Yes, I'll have more land, but now I'm dividing what I was already intended on giving to my kids. Right? That, that seems to be the impression that we get. All right? 
that the family name was important to continue on. And so this gentleman did not want to keep just dividing and subdividing his inheritance up. He wanted to stay within his own specific family. And so because of that, the response of this initial redeemer is changed. Right? He's no longer interested in the land or Ruth. And, and apparently, again, there's just concern that we can't keep slicing the pie up. In the story of twists and turns, this is one more. The Redeemer here says, look, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And so what Ruth was hoping would happen, and I believe what Boaz was hoping would happen, actually comes to fruition, right? Because Boaz told Ruth earlier, he says, look, I'm going to go. If he doesn't want it, I would be more than happy to enter in this relationship that, again, Ruth sought to establish with Boaz when he says, look, you know, spread your wings over me as in marry me. All this is actually coming to fruition. As the story unfolds, the hand of God continues to remain on this, steering it, providing within it, and now moving for it to allow for the union of Ruth and Boaz. And I think that there's some temptation here for you and for me is to view this story as the model. Right? As we seek the Lord, as you and I seek out the Lord, and we try to work through situations in life, we even respond in Christ-like character to these things, then surely everything must work out in the end. Right? There's temptation for us to look at the story and think, look, this must be how God works. If I'm faithful and I'll just be a good person, I'll try to do the right thing, then it always will work out. And before we come to that conclusion, be careful. That's how it happens to work out in this story. And we actually believe that that's how it happens to work out because God divinely orchestrates it to work out that way. But to come to a conclusion as a follower of Jesus that all things end happily is a false conclusion. However, within this story, I think there are some helpful foundational reminders for us. The first one is this. If you take notes, take them. These would be three points here. It says this. Despite the story or part of the journey we find ourselves in in life, God's hand is always at work. So despite where you and I find ourselves in, whatever kind of journey we're in, God's hand is still at work. You see, there was no supernatural declaration to Naomi or to Ruth that everything would work out in the end, right? There's no indication that God spoke to Naomi and said, look, tell Ruth to go to Boaz. I've got this great plan at work. There's no part of the clouds, rainbows with doves coming down from God to Ruth saying, go to Boaz. He's got some money. It's going to be okay. Those things don't happen. Life does not guarantee a Disney ending every single time. And I think we've just become accustomed to this in life. I really do. Because if you watch a movie that doesn't end happily, you don't like that. You become so accustomed to movies ending happily. And they lived happily ever after. Right? I knew how the story was going to go, and I uncomfortably went to the movie theater anyway. But I knew how the movie, right, American Sniper, was going to end. 
And I was sucked into this tale of just military and life and all this weaving in and out. And I know full well that the story does not end with a, they lived happily ever after. And guess what? I didn't leave this theater very happy that day. Yes, there's some somberness to it because it's reality of life. But again, I, I think in our culture, we've kind of conjured up the idea that, that all things end happily. And, I, and I've stated the case before, I think we try to coddle death a little bit in our culture to make it seem somehow more palatable. Look, right, death is the enemy. It's, it's not to be coddled, right? There's hope in Christ that supersedes the fear of death, though. See, life is not going to end happily ever after in every single scenario and every single moment. There are people who find themselves out of jobs and striving to find work unsuccessfully, maybe for years. There is tragedy that will exist that cannot bring a life back from a grave. Life is not guaranteed to be a happy ever after. But within our circumstances and within our realities exists a truth that, that God is unchanging. And so when I say the statement that God's hand is still at work despite where we find ourselves in one's journey, that is founded upon the fact that God is unchanging. And it's the unchanging truth that we find in Scripture about God that actually should motivate us and should encourage us and strengthen us in the struggle, even if we don't know how it's going to end. See, if we filter our present reality through the truth of God, perhaps we'll look at life situations differently. Here's what I mean, that we actually could possibly, as followers of Christ, that we place the place we find ourselves in, the circumstances we encounter today, even the hard ones, right? If we would understand that there is a God who is unchanging that exists over this, perhaps it would change our perspective. For example, if we look at Psalm 34, 8, when it says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in them. What does that tell us? It tells us that what? Well, God is good. And that in seeking him, we can find refuge or safety or comfort or protection or trust in his leadership. And that's a good thing. That's what I mean by blessed is the man, right? It's a good thing to find that. It's a good thing to discover that. So when I begin to look at my situation, I actually am forced, if I'm thinking biblically, I'm forced to remind myself, even in this, that I don't understand the truth supersedes the circumstance. My heart may tell me this is not good, but the truth is that God is still good in this. He's still good right now. He's still good, even though I don't understand it. I've, I've, I'm sure, shared this story before, if not numerous times. Just, again, I'm going to trust that you don't remember everything I say, so bear with me. When I was doing student ministry in northern Maine, um, we had, a, like, a six-month, just a, really what seemed like just major suffering within our church family. Um, 
I think it was something like October, um, a mom of three girls goes off the road, hits a tree, hits ice, hits a tree, and is killed instantly. Right, so our family has, our church family has to figure out how to just walk alongside this family in this moment. Uh, in that same time, uh, this other lady, actually Andrew's um, aunt, steps in and really just begins to care for these kids. She's been involved in their lives the whole time. And so that family's healing. We're trying to figure out as a church family, how do we get through this? How do we walk with this family in this? Um, uh, about, I think it was January, February, March, I don't remember when, the next year, uh, this great kind of pillar of our church passes away, Bill Carnes. The same week that that lady who stepped into care um, for this family, just, just to help to be an, really an aunt to them, has an aneurysm, just drops. And so I, I'm a student pastor, right? I don't, I, don't, I don't do big things like this. And I find myself in the same week having to work through two calling hours and two funerals in the same weekend, back-to-back days. And I'll never forget the pastor giving uh, a message that says, even in this situation, God is still good. Our emotion may not feel that or, or sense that in that moment, but that, that truth that God is still good superseded that experience. And at the end of the day, I, I know that those families in both those ladies' situations are still curious why. It doesn't seem to make sense. Those three girls and their dad are still trying to figure it out. How to work through life, right? One of them, I think one, two are in college now. And they were little, little. Their youngest is Landon's age. And I'm sure there's days when they still just wonder, why? Why my mom? Why Aunt Holly? They may never know this side of glory, the Why? And I actually am not so sure in glory their first question is going to be, tell me why. Because they're going to be in the presence of God. But it could be, I think, in that moment, perhaps there's clarity given. But see, what the truth allows us to do is it's to see me above our circumstance that even we don't understand it, God, we're trusting that you're still good in this. Scripture reminds us of that. Psalm 107.1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. What does this imply, or rather instruct us to think and to feel that God is good all the time? Right? You remember that statement if you were in a church older, right? And then someone would say back, right? God's good all the time, all the time God is good, and it was responsive. And it was responsive for a reason, because that's actually a declaration that you agree that God is good all the time, and all the time that God is good. What does that even that statement indicate? That despite my feelings, despite my um, even mental capacity to process something, God is still good in this moment. Even when it doesn't sit good with me. So what does that truth mean for us today? That even when we're unsure of the outcome, when we don't know why God allows the car to break down again, we don't understand why cancer won't go away. We can't stop the feeling of loneliness or depressed living that we're experiencing. When we don't understand why our kids don't seem to hold on to the faith they once had and knew so well. And frankly, when life just seems hard, in all those moments, God is still good. That truth still supersedes all those 
situations. And how can we possibly say that? Well, first, his word says that. And so at that moment, we're called to trust something much greater than us. Because God's goodness is not based on our circumstances. But God's goodness transcends our circumstances. Look, I promise you that if you and I, if we're sitting together because you called me because something's going on in your life, I'm not going to say the first thing to you, hey, I know it's hard right now, but God's still good. Don't worry about it. Because that's pretty insensitive. But I believe at some point in our conversation, that will be brought up. Because I think that reminder that God is good beyond our circumstance, that that truth that supersedes our experience actually draws us to other truths. That that God is so good and God does love me. And he showed that in Christ. God does care for me. And he proved that when he sent Jesus. And that God will provide for me because he has provided in Christ for my eternity. You see, truth, when allowed to be evident and present in our lives reminds us that God is always at work. We, you and I, need to fight the temptation to succumb to modern thought. And what is modern thought? That God's abandoned us. Look at the world around you. God has abandoned us. Pete's sakes, the Eagles won last year the Super Bowl. It seems like God has abandoned us, right? <laughs> right? And there's all these things we take, and that's just a simple example. We take, we try to kind of make it look like, God, where are you in all this? But look, fight that temptation. God has not abandoned you. You may not have clarity to why you're experiencing what you're experiencing, and I may not be able to offer that, but there are truths that exist beyond what you're experiencing right now. Cling to those truths. Despite what your emotions may say to you, cling to the truth that's found in the scriptures. Push back the lies of the devil that says God does not care. God does care. Instead, embrace the truth of scripture that God is a good God and he is the ultimate redeemer when he sent Christ. Number two, God is at work. It's not only the truths exist beyond our circumstance, but number two, God is at work. At times, it's beyond our comprehension or our understanding, but he is always at work. We're told later on in, in chapter four here, in the later portion, verses 18 22, of all these descendants that take place right, of Perez and Hezron and Ram, eventually down to Boaz, to Obed, to Jesse, to David. See, God was at work in this situation far beyond the life of Naomi and Ruth. See, God was faithful to keep the heritage and promise, really, of the coming Messiah, that he would come through the line of David, and he protects that all the way through. It's interesting facts, right? Nashon was actually Aaron's brother-in-law. Salmon actually fathered Boaz by Rahab. So in all of this narrative, right, even behind the plan of faithful redemption, God was at work using broken people to allow his will to come to fruition. See, we do not and may not ever know how our circumstances at work in an investment in the kingdom of God, but trust that it is. You may not like this, but God is sovereign. 
If you read the scriptures, God is sovereign. What does that mean? That he is over all things. And I'll tell you when you like that. Right? Because that gives you some sort of comfort when tragedy hits. There's some element of comfort. that God, I don't know. I don't understand what you're up to. But I'm trusting in your sovereignty right now. We find some hope in that. What we don't like it is when things start happening and we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, want, I thought I was in control right now. God says, I'm actually, I'm, I'm sovereign right now. He was sovereign in this situation. Again, in our lives, there will be things that happen that we may not understand, but we need to trust that the hand of God is at work in kingdom work. There's a reason that we are faithful, we try to be faithful here at State Street to pray that God would grow his kingdom. And if he allows our church family to grow in the process, we'll, we'll thank him for that, but we're actually way more interested in souls being saved from hell through the hope of the gospel. That he would grow his kingdom. Right? So I don't know how my situation could be a factor of one of my grandkids somehow being used for kingdom work down in some other generation that I'll never even know. And you know what? That's actually really hard. Because I want to understand how my plight and my struggle is directly going to be impacting something else. You want to know why? Because I'm selfish and I like to be in control. And I think you're like me at times anyway. Maybe you're nicer than me. I don't know. But I think that, that's the ultimate reality, that we don't know what's going to take place. But listen, just listen. This is a great reminder from Second Peter 3 when he says this. This is the last couple of verses, 8 and 9. It says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, look, God is at work. And there's temptation for you and for me to believe that God has forgotten about you. And maybe God even forgot that he promised to come back one day. But look, it follow Peter's warning here. Remain faithful and diligent in remembering that the heart of God is for people. God's heart is for people to come to know him, to be restored to him. He is not slow in keeping his promise, but God is actually patient. So here's what I just kind of watch happen. As people get older in life, you know what they want even more? If they know Jesus, they want him to come back even faster. The average 18-year-old is not asking Jesus to come back tomorrow. Because there's things they want to do. There's things they want to see. There's maybe get married or go to college and see the world and blah, 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 blah. And on and on and on and on and on. The person who's in their 70s and 80s, you know what they're saying? Jesus, come back tonight. And I think what happens is we begin to look at life through a different perspective. We say, look, whatever God's going to do and whatever he's going to restore is going to be way better than what I have right now. And so we begin to plead and to beg, Lord, return. Lord, take my aches and my pains. Come back again. But you know what's taking place? God is not slow in keeping his promise. He's being very patient so that other people would come to him. And perhaps your situation or circumstance has everything to do with others seeing Christ in you and through your situation so that they would come to Christ in the process you would mature. Look, don't discredit even your smallest struggle that it's not sanctification work. Here's what I mean by that. Don't think that even the smallest struggle in your life is not God maturing you. 
Because I think it is. Right? We've learned, those of us who have kind of lived with the Lord for a while, don't pray for patience. Because you're about to get bazooka blasted with opportunities to see how patient you're really going to be. And I actually would say this, that to pray for patience is not thinking biblically. Right? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good of faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So what does that tell me? That if I'm a Christian, if I've trusted in Christ, I have the Spirit, I actually have patience already. What I need to pray is, God, help me to use the patience you've already given me. Now, if you're stupid, you could pray, God, give me situations to use the patience that you've already given me. I wouldn't pray that, okay? <laughs> but if you're wise, you'd pray, God, help me to be more patient, and I know it's within me. Help me to be more, more loving, and I know it's within me because your spirit's within me because I'm yours. Right? Help me to be loving, right? There's a song that goes along with this. I don't forget what it is. Love, joy, patience, patience, kindness, goodness. Help me be more kind. I know it's within me because your spirit's within me. How are you working and maturing me and growing your kingdom? Don't think that your situation is not useful in that. Lastly, number three of these foundational reminders is this. Redemption changes everything. For Naomi and for Ruth, being redeemed by Boaz, it changed everything in their lives. They were again secure, they were again provided for, and they were again loved. The actions of Boaz truly was as if he's spreading his wings of protection over them and around them and fully encompassing them. And Ruth now knows and finds rest that Naomi had wanted for her. Even the women of the town saw hope in Boaz. The women told Naomi, said, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in all of Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who has more than seven sons, has given birth. Even the women in the town saw Boaz as being a source of hope, a restorer of life, if you will. And for as much as this was significant in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and later on Obed, the redemption that is ultimately found in Christ for us and for you and for me is even greater. As one author puts it, Christ's redemption has freed us from guilt and being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are freed from guilt when we are in Christ. What does redemption bring? It brings you these things. It brings you eternal life. When we're restored, we're redeemed, we are secure for all eternity. When we have authentically trusted in Christ. Right, if you want to, you know, it's on the screen for you to write down references. If you want to check those out later on your own, you can. It reminds us that redemption brings us forgiveness of sins. That that is the ultimate separator from us and God, right? God cannot allow sin to be in his presence because he's holy. Right? Our sins are forgiven, past, present, and the ones you're going to make this afternoon, right? Your future sins. Now, that doesn't give us a freedom to just go live in sin, because that's not indicative of a life being changed by the gospel, right? In fact, Paul said that. Should I go on sinning so that grace may abound, right? If I sin more, then God's grace just blows up, right? This is a good thing, because then won't other people see how gracious God is? Actually, no, that's a horrible representation of a life changed by Christ. 
where righteousness is restored. God sees us as righteous and holy because of the blood of Christ. That we're free from the law's curse, right? We're no longer under the law. We're under the banner of Christ and his blood. We've been adopted into God's family. If you are in Christ today, it says that you are a son or a daughter of God, your creator. That there is deliverance from sin's bondage. This is a huge one, church. If you are a a Christian today, you have trusted in Christ authentically. Sin cannot rule you. It can't. And so if you've gotten to the point of your life, like I, it's, just, it's, it's got mastery over me, you've got to remind yourself that the Spirit is at work within you. God has given you freedom for that. It cannot hold you in bondage. Perhaps you need to repent, confess, and move on. You now have peace with God. So what does that imply? That for those outside of God's family, there's not peace there. A universalism of salvation does not exist for all people. Not everyone's going to heaven. I'm not saying that callously. I'm saying that truthfully because that's what the scriptures tell me. And I say it compassionately because I want us to all be in glory. And I want our neighbors to be in glory. I want my family to be in glory. But we have to live in light of that truth that, that those outside of Christ don't have peace with him. So we need to pray they would come to know Jesus. Lastly, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is not Jiminy Cricket sitting on your shoulder. This is not good angel, bad angel. It's one telling you what to do and for God, the other one trying to get you to not do that. Not true. And you've got the, the Spirit of God living within you, dwelling, it says, established. Like he's, he's set up camp, and he's not leaving. And he wants to lovingly shape you to become more like Christ. And there's a temptation there for you to get offended and say, what, I'm not good enough? No. (laughs) We're not good people. And I don't need to tell you that. You probably know that about yourself. That we don't always make the right choice. We don't always choose to be generous. Sometimes we're selfish and Sometimes we're bitter, and and sometimes we're just nasty to people. And and the Spirit is needing to work in us because that's not a good representation of Jesus Christ. The goal of the believer, the goal, we do have goals, is to become more Christ-like. See, redemption for the Christian, it truly does change everything. As much as Ruth's and Naomi's life was about to be changed dramatically by Boaz, he was going to provide for them, he was going to take care of them, protect them, and love them. That pales in comparison to the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. What would God's people actually be like if we lived and responded with lives that were truly understanding our redemption? What would they be like? I even think I asked a question last week. If not, I thought it, which is close enough. What makes your life any different than the good, kind, generous person that doesn't know Jesus? 
What makes it any different? And if you're struggling right now to figure that out, you've got to begin to think through and wrestle through to remind yourself that redemption in Christ brings all these things. And so I believe that and that changes how we come in on a Sunday morning. We get to worship God together with other people who are worshiping the Lord together. I mean, this is just a foreshadow of glory, by the way, of heaven. I believe it affects how we go to work each day, how we love our wives and kids and our neighbors each day. I mean, it affects everything. See, the story of Ruth is far more than just a story. It's a reminder of God's provision and his providence and his redemption and that he restores and he holds fast and that those things that he holds fast cannot be shaken. So church, I would beg you today to cling to the Lord, to cling in all things, to trust that he is good even when we don't know exactly how, to trust that he is at work in ways that we may not see or understand. And to remind yourself that when we are his, we are secure. And God is going to work in our lives, ultimately for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this simple story of Ruth. Again, one of millions of other stories that could be in Scripture. But it's one that you have given us to remind us that you are at work in situations and in lives that you do not leave or abandon, but you hold fast. Father, would you help us to cling to the truth of Scripture today, trusting again that you are at work, that we are secure when we are in you, and ultimately you are looking for your glory and for our good to be known throughout the world. In your name, amen.